This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Hey. Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 210 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We've got a lot of stuff to get to today. We're going to talk about the live event that we had in Pigeon Forge. Obviously, we're going to talk about the fact that uh, we are writing a book. And we obviously have a story to tell you. That's kind of what we do. It's <laughs> kind of forced upon us no <laughs> i mean when you do a podcast yeah. you kind of got to do what you're supposed to do oh, so that's right but anyways before we do that obviously we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world no matter which country you represent thank you guys and gals and dogs for everything that you do to keep us safe and big thanks to everybody on the front lines out there while covid is still going all over the country yeah and especially for our police officers right now they are having a tough time with all these riotings that's going on, but we just want to say an extra prayer for them. Um, y'all be safe. Thank you guys for uh, protecting our country and keeping us safe. We love y'all so much. All right. We know for a fact, I just saw, I read an article day before yesterday that was talking about how the COVID, especially with people that were having to stay home because Mm -hmm. maybe they're high risk or something like that, how this is affecting them, how the overdose rates are up, how the suicide rates are up. And it was just basically saying, you know, four months into this, it's, it's just getting worse. Yeah. And, you know, we just want people to know that, you know, you've got people who care about you, whether it's family, whether it's not family, whether it's friends, whether it's us, there are people you can talk to. And we want you to be able to to reach out to it. We have our group that I personally feel like is a super supportive group. Uh, I know occasionally there'll be a little kerfluffle, if that's a word. And, you know, when you've got 5,000 people in a group from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different religions, all kinds of different cultures, you know, not everybody is going to see things exactly the same way. So occasionally we'll have something that, you know, somebody doesn't feel like is supportive. Uh, others feel like it is, regardless of the fact. As a majority, the group is very supportive, and I think they're there for for you in your time of need. If you feel like that, you need to be there. So, join the group, give it a try. I think you'll be impressed. And if you need to do this, you can call the suicide hotline at eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Or you can text them at 741-741. But please reach out. Awesome. And we're going to talk, like I said, at the end uh, of the show, I'll probably talk a little more about the group and uh, what we're doing to try to keep it as safe as possible for everybody involved. And uh, like I said, it's tough when you got 5,000 people. So. And we're, but we're grateful for every one Absolutely. of you all. But it, it, it is a task. So I just need people to be patient and 
realize when there's 5,000 people involved in anything, nothing is going to go exactly the way everybody seems to think it is. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some differences. But you know, like I said, we'll get into that a little bit more. All right, Tracy. Let's get on with this story. Okay. So I always love it when we get to the opportunity to talk about haunted prisons. Honestly, they're some of my favorite episodes that we've done. But I try to kind of space them out a little bit because obviously most of the prison stories have a lot of the similar backgrounds and stuff like that. And I don't know if people actually even pay attention, but I try not to do too many of the same types of episodes at once. Right. So, like, I'll do a couple of hauntings and I'll throw in a poltergeist and I'll throw in a cryptid Mm -hmm. and, you know, a UFO and stuff. And then we'll get back. Because, I mean, if you do like six haunted houses in a row, People probably start getting kind of bored of that. And oh, so, yeah. So I try to mix it up a little bit. I'm sure. I think the, the last haunted prison we did was the one up in Wyoming, and that one was super fun. I like that one. Mm-hmm. So. What usually sets these prisons apart are the histories. Like the Ohio State Reformatory, for example, you had the warden's wife who accidentally shot herself. Well, it depends on who you talk to. Some people say she accidentally shot herself. Some people say it was a suicide. But, you know, she was one of the ones that was haunting the place. That was, you know— Unique to that one, which was kind of a cool focal point from from Ohio State Reformatory. Then you got Eastern State, which you got the constant solitude of the prisoners there, not allowing anybody to speak, and all the torture methods they use. Then Moundsville, you had the Native American aspect there with all the mounds that were straight across from the prison. So tonight we're going to talk about the Missouri State Penitentiary. This is one that we've had suggested a couple of times just in the last few months. Good. Yeah, once was last week. So I thought, you know what? Let's just go ahead and knock it out. I had, like I said, I've already had it on my list, but I just I don't normally have a list in order. It's just whatever I feel like doing. Sometimes I'll start one and not really feel it and move on to the next thing on the list. So, so Tracy, are you ready to find out why the Missouri State Penitentiary's nickname was the bloodiest 47 acres in America. Oh, my Lord. That's a lot to live up to. <laughs> it is. So the Missouri State Penitentiary was opened up in Jefferson City, Missouri in 1836. But do you know why it was built in Jefferson City? I do not. Jefferson City was the capital of Missouri back in 1822. But over the next 10 years, they had a bunch of other cities that were vying to be the new capital. In order to stay the capital, Jefferson City had to do something spectacular, something big. And the governor of Missouri at the time was a gentleman by the name of John Miller. He had a plan. In 1831, he decided to build a state prison. This would be a maximum security state penitentiary. So the following year, the state legislator approved it, and construction was started in 1834, after two years of construction, the prison opened in 1836. So it basically was built just so they could keep the capital in Jefferson City, Missouri. Oh, man. Well, I mean, I'm what sure you got to do. I'm sure it was needed, but... Oh, I'm sure, yeah. But it was, you know, I don't know how he came to the conclusion that a prison was what to do to keep the, the state capital there, but that's, that's what he did. Initially, it housed just 15 prisoners when it opened up, and their job was to make bricks. Make bricks? They made bricks. How do you make bricks? Out of clay and stuff like that. Oh. Well, there was a lot of limestone on the property. Mm -hmm. As you're going to find as we get a little more into this that they used for a bunch of other stuff, these bricks may have been been limestone bricks. No. And when you think about it, it, that's probably the case. When when you hear more, it'll make more sense, I think. So the prison 
was to be a work in progress for years to come. They eventually started housing more prisoners, and they used these prisoners to build a mammoth prison. This place is huge. Huge. It has to be if you said mammoth. <laughs> eventually, earning the nickname The Walls. It obviously got this nickname because it had very high limestone walls surrounding the whole facility. There were 15 different officers' towers. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The prisoners housed here also built several mansions, including the warden mansion that was built by stone that was quarried right there on the site. So, like I said, there was all kinds of... So, when you said bricks, Mm -hmm. initially, I'm thinking like your basic red bricks. That's what I was thinking. But I think they were probably bricks made out of quarried stone that was right there. Okay. By 1968, the prison was still expanding, and it built its oldest remaining building, the Hall, officially known as Housing Unit 4. The building was built to specifically house post-Civil War criminals, and it was designed by Warden Horace Swift. So that's pretty cool. You got prisoners. You built a whole building just to hold Civil War prisoners. Mm -hmm. And he said post-Civil War prisoners, so this was even... After the war, they were still holding them yeah. for whatever reason. Well, I hope they built them something nice since they had to live there. <laughs> I don't think that's what, what the intention was. <laughs> Eventually, the prison would reach a capacity of about 2,000 inmates, and that's kind of stayed the average there for several years. The first female was uh, brought into the prison in 1842. When the prison first opened, they operated a lease program. And this was like a program that allowed businessmen to come in and lease prisoners to come work for them. No. So if they wanted to go build something, they wanted them in a factory or whatever, they could come there. They would pay the prison money, and then they would basically... Put them to work. Put them to work. Kind of like a temp agency when you think about it. definitely. No benefits. (laughs) Right. The benefit was they got out of that jail for a while. Well, that's true. We know that the prisoners built most of the prisons themselves, but they also built several buildings in Jefferson City, including the first Capitol building and the first governor's mansion. Oh, nice. Several area homes were also built by prison labor. So they were getting the most out of their prisoners. Sounds like it. And see, and I think, I mean, not to try to take jobs away from just your your average guy yeah. on the street. But, I mean, I think that's what should be happening with, with prisons and stuff like this. Here's mm-hmm. something I didn't know. And I actually learned this when we were in uh, Savannah, or what was it, St. Augustine, when we went to the old jail. You know how they had the chain gangs, obviously, and they were always, like, busting rocks and stuff like right. that. You know there was really no need for that? Like, they, were, they weren't busting those rocks for something else. Like, they wouldn't sell them to a, a company that used them for something. That was just their way of making them do something. Mm-hmm. So it's like they were busting rocks for basically like no reason for the most part. Okay. No in some of these cases on chain gangs, not on all of them. Some mm-hmm. of them they were doing stuff that was purposeful, but they were just making sure that they had hard labor, even if there was no need for it. They would just create a job. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that. I always thought they were. Yeah, I know, did too. I did not made know for that. For concrete companies or something. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's a hard job to do. Yeah. So we mentioned the AHA earlier. This building was used all the way up until the prison closed in 2004. So it was built in, what, the 1860s, I think, is Mm -hmm. when it was built. And it was still in use. That is amazing. In 2004. So the basement area of the building was known as the hole. This is where their hole was. This is where they kept 
the uh, hardened criminals. This mm-hmm. is where they kept the death row inmates. It was a medieval-style dungeon that housed some, obviously some of the worst criminals that the prison had to offer. Over the years, the prison housed as many as six factories inside of its walls. So not only were they having people go out on that program that they were using to work inside of factories, they had their own six factories inside of the prison itself. I wonder what all they did. Well, I'm glad you asked. In 1885, they were doing shoes, clothing, and even twine. They made twine. Hmm. So, pretty cool. And the biggest that they did there was a saddle tree factory. Do you have any idea what a saddle tree is? I feel like I should, but I don't. Well, I didn't, so I looked it up. This, By the way, this saddle tree factory they had in this prison was mm-hmm. the biggest in the entire world. <laughs> oh, man. A saddle tree is, think about a saddle itself. Mm-hmm. So the saddle tree is the base of the saddle that then gets covered with... Um, the leather or whatever. Oh. On it. So it's kind of like when you think of a saddle, you, you see it all in leather. Oh, leather. So, but that, actually, right. this it's the part that's underneath covered of with, it. underneath of it that's covered with leather. Oh. But that's So that's what they made there. Well, good to know. And I'm assuming you've already figured out that all of this was done with prison labor. Well, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So, I mean. Right. But why I'm saying that is by the 1900s, the Missouri State Penitentiary was known as the most efficient prison in the country. So, I mean, think about it. Let's Let's put this into perspective we always hear about prisons and how 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 much it costs to house the inmates and it'll cost this many thousands of dollars to house an inmate and all that stuff and what money do you get back from it i know some of the prisons you know they would do license plates and stuff like that for the uh the government to try to help recoup some of that but they were actually making money on their prison so what they had coming in off these factories and off of their labor that they leased out was actually more money than what it was costing to house and feed the prisoners. Oh, so they so, made a good profit. Yeah, they were making a profit, which, I mean, when you think about it, that's kind of incredible. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you'll have people out there that say, well, I mean, that's not right. If they're already locked up, they've already lost their privileges, you know, in society, that you shouldn't, they shouldn't be forced to have to work for. And, and I get that. So I can see both sides of it. But, you know, we're talking 1900. So right, yeah. A whole different oh, a way whole of different looking at stuff game, yeah. The Jefferson City Star Tribune went as far as to say that it was the greatest prison in the world. Well, that's an honor, I guess. I don't, know. I don't think the people who were inside there <laughs> would necessarily it. believe that. Though. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> not. In 1905, Housing Unit 1 was constructed. This building was the housing for female inmates. Well, what'd they do with that one? I don't know. I guess they, they probably just kept her. I mean, theoretically, you're in a cell by yourself. So, I mean, even though they probably had to just work different things for, like, going to the bathroom and yeah. stuff like that. Well, I mean, that's good for her because I'm sure they had more than one in each cell. At least she got her own cell to herself. I'm sure that's what they did. I mean, it's a good question, though. Thanks. But as far as that building, that um, uh, building, Unit 1, Housing Unit 1, that is now the main entrance to the penitentiary if you go there oh, for no a tour. Oh, no kidding. hmm In 1914, there was more expansion to the prison, and Housing Unit 3 was added. This was the Capital Punishment and Segregation Unit. Oh, 
<laughs> this was this was not the good place to be. In 1936, the prison had 4,900 inmates. Damn. Remember back we just it's talked 15, back for it. They had about 2,000 oh, yeah. back in the day. But but also at the same time, unlike when we talked about Eastern State Penitentiary, how you got the same size prison that just kept increasing, they were building onto this prison. So yeah, you know, right. I don't, I, I didn't really see anything where they talked about it being really overcrowded. Uh-huh. Now I did see like in the hole that these prison cells were extremely small. Oh, I'm so sure. So they didn't have. They might not have been overcrowded as far as having crammed people into yeah. his cells, but they didn't have very much room, even if it was one person in there. At its highest point, there were 5,200 prisoners, which was far more than what it was designated to hold, but still not as bad as some of these other prisons. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. In 1937, inmates built the gas chamber. Oh, God. Well, they built the, the building that the gas chamber was in. I don't think they actually built the actual gas chamber. Oh, no, probably, but just... Probably above their oh, pay grade. Yeah. All executions before this were done by hanging. Forty prisoners would die in that gas chamber. But, here's a little trick question for you. Only 39 would die in the gas chamber by gas. The other was, he was died in the gas chamber, but it was through lethal injection. I think I'd rather have that. If I had to go. Oh, I'd definitely rather have lethal injection. Yeah. Out of those 40 people, one of them was a female, 39 were male. No kidding. Yes. And I don't have any information on her. I wonder what, what that biatch did. did. <laughs> Something that required the death chamber, wow. according to them. That last execution that was by lethal injection, that happened in 1989. After that execution, all of the prisoners that were on death row were transferred to Potosi Correctional Center, and that's in Mineral Point, Missouri. In 1938, the prison... Got its first hospital. How about that? Five stories, 240 beds. It's a pretty good-sized hospital. Dang, that is I mean, a big one. When you got 5,200 prisoners. Yeah. You know. How many beds? 240. This is a prison, so obviously there was a lot of bad stuff that went on. Yeah, and Within of the prison, like every prison. There were several murders. There were attempted suicides. And there were plenty of riots. Mm-hmm. None of the riots were like the one of September 1954. That is what this prison is known for. You have to know that from 1952 to 1954, there were several riots in prisons all across the country. So when authorities heard talk about a riot in any of these prisons, they took it seriously. So here we go. It's the evening of September 22nd, 1954. Two inmates pretend to be sick. So two guards come down to check on them. The inmates grab the guards. They overpower them. They beat one of the guards pretty bad, beating mercilessly. Mm-hmm. They took the guards' keys, and they started releasing all of the other prisoners. Eventually, several hundred inmates were loose and running all over the complex. They broke windows, destroyed furniture, and even set several fires throughout the prison, including in some of the factories we spoke about earlier. This was beyond controllable. So, in fact, the powers that be told the press that they were not even going to attempt to secure the cell blocks that night. Instead, they were going to turn their attention into preventing a massive breakout. You can imagine. I cannot even imagine. (laughs) No, I can't. So, early the next morning, 18 men went into the cell blocks. 
there was about 300 of uh, the rioters that were in this four-story Whitestone building. Now, this was a building that was not part of the prison as far as where inmates were allowed in. But that's where they're at now. I guess, you know, they didn't really care about them. After they already started rioting, they didn't really care where they should be or shouldn't be. Yeah. So they're in this building. They got these 18 men ready to go in. They got 100 policemen standing outside of the prison that were, uh, I guess, more of the second line of defense in case they absolutely had to have something else. Mm-hmm. And then they had some armed state troopers on the rooftop to help out if necessary. So let's get back to the 18 that were going in. They were fully loaded. They had riot guns and submachine guns. They get into the building. They are immediately met with shouting and cursing, and they're pelted with items that were thrown from the inmates. Mm -hmm. The building was flooded. They said it was about four inches of standing water within the building. So they've obviously busted pipes and, and everything else in there. Not to mention all of the windows had been broken out. The guards, they get on the loudspeaker, and they ordered the convicts to go to the nearest cell and be quiet, or they would be shot. They wouldn't play around. No, not at all. One of the inmates decided to test the guards and was shot and killed. Well, there you go. Surprisingly enough, the other inmates suddenly decided to go to the nearest cell and be quiet. <laughs> By mid-afternoon, everyone was back in their cells, but four inmates had been killed. Another 50 inmates were injured, and one had attempted suicide but failed. My gosh, how horrible. Several buildings suffered severe fire damage, and they lay smoldering at this time. It was estimated that over $5 million worth of damage had been done by the rioters, and it was also determined that the riot started in Housing Unit 3. So because of the regular violence in this prison, Time Magazine named it the bloodiest 47 acres in America in 1967. Yeah, I guess that's all right. It seemed like there'd be a lot more bloodier stuff than that. Well, but there might not be bloody 47 acres. This was the bloodiest 47 acres. Yeah, that's so. so crazy. I mean, I, I know this is stupid, but... You're in prison, and that's bad enough, but you know you're going to have to stay in prison. Why are you not taking care of your shit? Why you got to tear up everything? Well, I, mean, I guess they figured this was a way to get back at somebody because, look, at that, somebody's got to spend $5 million to fix it. That's very true. So I guess they figured, huh, I might be in here, and I'm staying in here no matter what, but now you're stuck with this bill. Mm. So, I mean, I guess it's... Just yeah. a mindset. Right. So the prison was closed in 2004 after 168 years of continuous operation. That is crazy. Which is one of the longest in the United yeah, States history. Yeah, that's awesome. Not yeah. awesome, but I'm just saying. It's, right. That's pretty impressive. After closing, many of the 50 buildings were torn down to make room for federal courthouse and some other state buildings. During the 168 years that they operated... There were some pretty big names to come through there, Hmm. and we're going to talk about a few of them. In 1925, bank robber and well-known participant of the Kansas City Massacre, Charles Arthur Floyd, was sent here. You probably know him better as Pretty Boy Floyd. Oh. Then you got Blanche Barrow. It could be Barrow. And she was part of the Bonnie and Clyde gang. Mm -hmm. She was there. That she was, was a tough chick. That was 1933. Yeah, she was cool. 
What about boxer Sonny Liston? I don't think I've ever heard of him. Well, he's the, if you remember, the famous picture of Muhammad Ali Mm -hmm. bent over the other boxer. Mm -hmm. That boxer on the ground is Sonny Liston. Oh, see, I didn't know that. I know that picture well. Yes, Sonny Sonny Liston was the heavyweight champion of the world at some point. But he started his boxing career there at the prison. Here's a name you'll know. James Earl Ray, who is famous for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. He was in here. And escaped in 1967, a year before assassinating Dr. King. You've got to be kidding. No. Are you ready for some paranormal stuff? I am. So I need Hank Williams Jr. to sing that for me. (laughs) Okay, so I know it's not operational anymore, but is the prison itself still standing? Yeah, you can go take tours and ghost tours and stuff like that. I'd like to do that. That'd be cool. Tom Wells, he worked as a guard at the prison in 1989. And... Now he's leading some of the prison ghost tours that go on. He said that he's not a ghost hunter, but he kind of lucked into one of the coolest part-time jobs ever. He had his own paranormal experience when he was a guard. Mm. This story's pretty cool. So it was a beautiful day. It was around 3 p.m. Like I said, this is back in 1989. Wells was talking to an inmate named John. That's when another inmate, long blonde hair, T-shirt, pair of jeans, Walks right out the door, right past the two of them. Oh, the uh, the prison door? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was still into the yard area. Oh, you know, oh, it was still oh, part okay. of the prison. But he walks through here. Well, this pissed, you know, Wells off because this happened during a prison head count. And when you're doing a prison head count, mm-hmm. you can't be just yeah, you can't be wandering, wandering around, around, and everybody knows the rules there. So he thought that sob just walked out during a head count, <laughs> and he was going to jump down his throat. So he goes out he walks around the building he walks up the right side of the building and didn't see anybody so he figures the man ran around the other side of the building he then went around the other side of the building still nothing that's when he got to the big gate the big gate was locked so he knows nobody got through there so wells was sure he saw this guy what about the other guy he was talking to yeah right so he's he's like well but now he's all the way on the other side of the building so he can't really talk to that guy so, he goes up to a tower that's up on the left side of the building. So, he asked the guard in the tower. He's like, hey, did you see anybody? Of course, the guard said, no, it's count time. It's locked down. Well, that's when Wells spots a van that's sitting there. And the prison uses this van to take supplies up and down the hill, right? Mm-hmm. His first thought is, oh, man, this guy's in a van and he's going to try to escape. Yeah. The van was on a hill, so he could kind of see underneath of it as he walked up. Mm -hmm. He looked in the back window. All the seats had been taken out because they didn't need them. They needed it for cargo. So they took all the seats out of the van. Looked in the back window. Nobody was in there. He opens the van up. He checks everywhere inside. Nothing. So remember John. He was the the guy that was standing there with him. Right. That's who I was talking about. Right. John, the inmate, walks up. To Weller, just as he's he's shutting the uh, the door on the on the van, and he says, uh, "You ain't gonna find that guy." Oh my God, John said that. <laughs> yeah, and Well said, "What are you talking about?" And John said, "I saw him." And so Well says, "Well, what did he look like?" He said, "T-shirt, long blonde hair." And Well said, "Yeah, yeah, that's him." And John said, "Wells, 
we ain't got nobody in the building that looks like that. Mm. Well said it was like, whoa, you're right. And he said that it was like, once he realized this, it was like he got punched in the, in the stomach. Ooh. It's just so odd. But yeah, that's... Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, think about this. You know, we've talked before about limestone. Right. And how it affects... Uh, people think that it absorbs negative energy and stuff like that. You got this whole prison. Made out of it. Made out of limestone. Every inch of it. Limestone. So, I don't know. Wow. That's so cool. I wonder who that guy was, for real. I don't know. But 168 years worth of prison torment oh. all absorbed into that limestone. limestone. Who knows? All right. We have prisoners... And guards have reported ghostly sightings for years here. This is way before the prison even closed. Obviously, it's been closed mm-hmm. in 2004, so people see stuff now. There was an inmate by the name of John Firebug Johnson. And he was in there from 1883 to 1900. Old Firebug spent the majority of his time down in a dungeon. Uh-oh, big troublemaker, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Prior to that, he tried to escape on several occasions. On one of these attempts, he set a fire that did $500,000 worth of damage and killed several inmates. That's how he got his name, Old Firebug. That's terrible. Yeah. And, you know, think about this. He got out of jail after, like, 18 years. How the hell does <laughs> that get out of jail How do you do $500,000 worth of damage and, and you kill several inmates oh, and you're Lord. out of jail in 18 years? They just want to be done with him. Like, you gotta get him out anyway, of here. I thought that was amazing. That's but anyway, crazy. he wrote a book after he got out. And it was called Buried Alive for 18 Years in the Missouri Penitentiary. In this book, he describes several apparitions that would terrorize the prisoners during the time that they were in there. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. I wouldn't have to want to have to live with somebody like that. No. You know? The A-Hall. I have to be careful because <laughs> it really does. A-hole. It does sound like the A-Hall. <laughs> so the A-Hall is the oldest building, and it's said to be the most haunted spot on the property. Inside the A-Hall, there is four stories worth of cells with catwalks that crisscross against, you know, yeah. with each other. People on tour have said that they've been touched by invisible hands, and they felt a breath on their neck. This is all. There's also an, an overwhelming smell of body odor. Ooh. Here's the thing, though. That limestone mm-hmm. that absorbs. Most people don't think that's a paranormal thing. They just think that there's been so much body odor in there over the years. It's absorbed into those walls, and you can't get rid of it. So that is a smell that a lot of people smell, but it may not be paranormal. Oh my gosh! I bet it is. Many have seen apparitions of a man up on the catwalk. Equipment often malfunctions in here. This is not just ghost hunting equipment or cameras or stuff like just any kind of equipment in this building tends to, if it's plugged in or if it has battery, it has a tendency to malfunction. Apparently, there's also several shadow figures that are seen within the place. So it's a spooky place. Several guests have captured disembodied voices on their recording equipment, Mm. whether it be video or just audio. Well, there's several different reasons why this prison could be haunted, per se. One of the ones that doesn't get talked about very much is the parking lot. The parking lot? On the premises, 
there's a parking lot. But underneath that parking lot is several hundred bodies oh, buried. Oh, crap. And supposedly this is from where they had a big disease outbreak in the early years of the prison. And they just buried them all in a mass grave. Oh, my gosh. That would freak me out so bad. <laughs> and that's And that area is right across from the gas chamber. Oh, my gosh. So you've got the gas chamber where 40 people died. And right close to it, you've got a parking lot full of hundreds. It's how funny that so many people don't know that. Yep. So while it's unclear who some of the apparitions are, several people believe that one is Walter Lee Donnell. So remember we talked about the prison riot of 1954, and we said that four inmates were killed during the riot. Walter Lee Donnell was the first. So let's find out a little bit who Walter Lee Donnell was. Well, he was a St. Louis thief, and he was looked at as a snitch by several of the inmates. And this came because he testified against some other criminals in St. Louis. Mm, That's always not a good thing to do. Right. The prison feared for his safety because Mm -hmm. everybody knew apparently that he was a snitch. So they had him placed in isolation down in the hole for his own safety. So he was in the hole during the time. As a matter of fact, in the very last cell at the end. So his cell was like a dead end of the the prison wall. Yeah. So he's in that very last cell. Once the riot started, the inmates were released, and several broke through a concrete wall. What? And they went, yeah, well, they had a sledgehammer. They went to get him after him? Yes. They went through a concrete wall and went straight to the 30-year-old Donnell's cell. They cornered him and bashed his head in with a sledgehammer. Oh, Lord have mercy. They did more, and we'll get into that here I in a little I don't want to know. Well, you got to know. I did the research, and you're going to hear it. Oh my gosh! I was watching Ghost Adventures. Just to, um, let me let me say this about Ghost Adventures. I think everybody knows how I feel about Zach Bagans. That's more about his style of paranormal investigating than it is about him as a person. But the one thing that I do like about the show, and I watch a lot of if they've if they've done an episode on a place I'm researching, I do like to watch it because they have really good interviews mm-hmm. with the people. No, they do that were that were involved. Yeah. So I can find out some stuff even if it's not from them. I find out from, from the people they're investigating and get some good stuff yeah. on there. So they actually did an episode on there, and I and I was watching that, and according to. Uh, Ghost Adventures, and this this irritated me, and I know it's TV, but here's the thing. So Zach says, tells a little bit about the story of what happens. And there's a guy that that we'll talk about in a minute that was one of the ex-wardens there. Mm -hmm. He says that Donnell was killed with a hammer. Correct. But Zach says, okay, we're going to show you some inside the cell, and some of you may not want to see this. Okay. Fair enough. So they start showing black and white what looks like evidence photos. Mm-hmm. There's a guy laying there. His head's busted open. Mm-hmm. There's blood. There's a, a bloody hand. And, you know, and it's got the little cardboard numbers, like two, three, right. four, whatever, sitting there in front of him. One of the things it shows is a regular claw hammer. And I'm like, I've already researched this. It said a, head, a sledgehammer. Oh my God, I can't but, imagine. But Zach is showing... 
he he didn't say these were actual crime scene photos, but he said some of you might not want to watch this. Yeah. And then it shows stuff that's making it appear that these are evidence photos, and it shows a regular claw hammer, just a basic hammer mm-hmm. with blood on it. Okay, so I said, okay, that's not what I read. Maybe Zach's right. Maybe this is yeah. what it really yeah. is. He's got it. So I go and I read, and here's what I found from the actual court records. According to the transcripts from the court, it says six men went into the cell at 10.30 p.m. and murdered him in a horrible manner. Fair enough. His body bore sundry stab wounds, front, back, and elsewhere. Two of these clear through to his heart. There were knife wounds on his neck. His skull was partially crushed in from a heavy blow, apparently made by a bloody sledgehammer found in his cell. So with that being said, I feel like that he was killed by a sledgehammer, and I don't yeah. know why. He's probably like, this is a bunch of horse crap, man. I'm put down <laughs> in the hole so you can't bother me. He would have probably never dreamed somebody would smash through concrete no. to get to him. So with that being said, there was an interview with Mark Schreiber. Uh, he was the gentleman, he was the deputy warden there from 2001, 2004. So the last three years that the prison was actually open. He told the Donnell story, but he also said that he saw an inmate stabbed while he was there. He said this inmate had his arms handcuffed around his back. And even while guards or whoever the representatives from the university were taking him out, somebody jumped up there and stabbed the guy. Even Right in front of... With the guards whoever, holding him. Yeah, they were, they were waiting for him. They were just waiting for the guy to get to that point and jumped up and did it. He also said there were two officers that uh, he had to work the homicide case on in there. Wow. So, yeah, pretty bad place. Yeah. They also had a tour guide by the name of Maggie. Now, Maggie said she had an experience in the A-Hall. She said... Yeah, I really needed to make sure I had to pronounce that right, because we don't need Maggie talking about she had an experience in the A-hole. <laughs> that would really, really sound bad. So she had an experience in the A-hole. She said that an, an entity came up behind her, grabbed her shoulder, and squeezed really hard to the point where it really panicked her. So you can imagine just you're there and something like grabs your oh shoulder gosh, right by yeah. your neck and I just squeeze it. freak out, yeah. <laughs> There's another tour guide by the name of Lupe. She captures some video footage of a window closing in cell 40 in in the A-Hall. Man, oh man. And actually, this is uh, you can see this footage on Ghost Adventures if you if you go check it out. I had a hard time seeing what it actually was. Yeah, I bet it would be hard to tell. Well, I mean, they kept they circled it and everything so you yeah. could see it, but I never could see it actually closed, but that's what oh, yeah. it was. Lupe said that she was on a tour one time and the entire tour group Heard screaming coming from the dungeon area. And then you've got Dana Matthews. Dana is, um, you might not know her by Dana Matthews, but you might know her more by Dana Newkirk, Greg and Dana Newkirk, mm-hmm. who obviously did Hellier and stuff. But back in 2015, her and Nick Groff went uh, down there. She was working for a week in the weird. And they went down there together. And who better to go with than Nick Groff? He's already been there. He oh, was yeah. on the Ghost Adventures episode. Totally. And they were given a tour about Maggie Harris. On that tour, she shared a picture that a guest had taken in the A-Hall from cell 48, which also just happens to be the cell where Donnell was killed. Aww. So 48. 
the guest didn't notice anything at the time that, you know, they took the picture. But when they got back, there was a strange-looking, distorted human figure standing next to her friend that only showed up in the picture and not in person. Yikes. No, thanks. So, anyways, that's the story on the Missouri State Penitentiary. That is creepy. Yeah, fun. Heck on. <laughs> I would love to go see that building just because it's so old. Oh yeah, and it's 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 a cool looking place. I bet it's a very cool looking place. Mm. I wish I'd like to have been able to see them when all the buildings were there. Yeah, of just, did you know, they knock them all down there? No, they still got you know uh, they still got a bunch, but there was yeah. fifty at one. Oh point yeah, now. that's a lot. So wow, might have to take a trip. Yeah. What we're gonna do though is we're going to talk a little bit about some stuff, and then we've got this week's Fear of the Week. Oh, Episode 23. Awesome. So, And Leslie, by the way, has a new podcast. If you haven't heard it yet, we put up a little sample of it so you can go check it out. But it's it's called Because I Want to Know, and it's an interview podcast. It's completely different than what she does on Fear of the Week. So even if you're listening and don't like Fear of the Week, it's a completely different style for her mm-hmm. she's in she is a fantastic interviewer she is and uh, we'll be on an upcoming episode yep so, yeah but yeah no, i know she's only got a, a couple of episodes out but go subscribe give her a listen i think you're gonna like it yeah she does a great job all right so real quick break from our sponsor and then we'll get on with everything okay let's talk about pigeon forge let us it was so much fun yes it was it was Obviously, a lot of things happened with that. With uh, the guys from Graveyard Tales were originally meant to be there, and then uh, they weren't able to come. Yeah, we missed them. Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances filled in. Thank you, Justin, for that. Yeah, he did a great job. And then Joe Pooley, the paranormal investigator from the area, he had an incident that morning to where he couldn't show up. True story. So Kristen, <laughs> Kristen, our daughter from Hillbilly Youngins, filled in, and Kristen and Dakota got up there and. Uh, Spent some time answering some questions and talking about stuff. So it was really a, a, it turned out with all the little obstacles that were thrown our way, it turned out really well. We yeah, had, we, they did a great job. Yeah, we social distanced. So um, there was about, I, how many people do you think were there? 30, about 35? 30, yeah, yeah. 30, 35. There's probably 30, 35. And everybody was spaced apart. Everybody had masks on if they wanted to use it. I mean, some people took their mask off, but they were away from everybody oh, else. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we, we kept our mask on as much as we could, but I mean, it's, it's hard to sit up in front of a microphone and talk to people with yeah. a mask on. Yeah. We didn't do that. Yeah. So <laughs> so we took the mask off from doing that. And then some people, they want pictures and, mm-hmm. you know, so we just, everybody, you know, for the most part, I thought did a really good job. We had plenty of hand sanitizer there for mm-hmm. everybody and it, it went really well. So thank yeah. if you came to the show, thank you. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. It was just an honor meeting all of you and seeing some of our old friends come out and uh, it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, so well, glad we got to do it. We got to give away a lot of, oh, you could take a hot sauce. Yep. We sure did. And then uh, Joe uh, supplied us with hand sanitizer. Which and masks. Was cool. And masks. Yep. And it was, it was just a lot of fun. And we were very grateful that we were able to come together. I wish we could do more of them, but I guess not. So We'll work it out next year. Yeah. And we almost got attacked by a bear. We did. Was so, it cool? Yeah, we you know it's funny, we've been going to we've been going to the Gatlinburg area, Pigeon Forge area for shoot, thirteen, fourteen years now. And sometimes two to three times a year. And up until this year we had never seen a bear. 
Never. We always hear people, oh, he's in a bear. We were in our hotel room and it came right up to the hotel room. We could sit. Never. And we stay places purposely to be able to see bears. <laughs> and it just hadn't happened. So earlier this year, back in June, we went and we went to a place called Cades Cove, which everybody says, if you want to see a bear, there you go. And we seen some, but they were from a distance, but we were just excited. Yeah. So now we get to this place. We're driving up to the little cabin area. And as soon as I turn onto the road, a bear jumps right in front of the car and jumps up. And it's like a probably medium-sized bear. Mm-hmm. And it jumps up into the woods. And I'm like, Tracy, did you see that? And she was looking at her phone, so she didn't see it. <laughs> but it was funny because, I mean, he was gone. Look at his yeah, he was, yeah. But then a little later, she saw him out up in the woods. And yeah, then, right. And it's so funny because the cabin kind of embedded into the mountain. Yes. Into the, I, mean, I mean, it was like right there. So I saw him walking around. And, of course, Kristen's freaking out this whole time. You know, like she's like having a panic attack. And then continue on. Well, then a little bit later, I decide that, you know, I'm out, I'm out on the deck with, with the youngest granddaughter, Addison. And she's eight. And I said, you want to walk down with me? And we'll just walk around down at the, at the like, the, the driveway area. And she's like, yeah. So we go down there and we're, we're looking. And I'm looking one direction. She looks over towards where we had the car parked, which was a I'd say probably 30 yards away. Look, a bear. <laughs> At that, that's the way she would look, a bear. Like it was nothing. And I look over and there's this bear like slowly walking towards us. And we were really close to the stairway to lead up. We were up on the third floor. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, go on, Addison. Let's go ahead and go. And she takes like three steps and turns around and looks. I'm like... I'm trying to take pictures too. I'm not going to, but I mean, obviously her safety came first. So I'm like, go on, Addison, let's go. And we get them up to about the second level. And here's the bear come walking, jump, climbs up the wall, all slow and Mosley, you know, climbs up the wall. And now he's literally 10 feet from us. Mm -hmm. So I'm rushing the kids up the stairs. By now, Dakota had done, came down and getting a good look. And I'm trying to rush them up. I mean, this bear is close enough where he could have climbed right up where we were. Yeah. That's cool. You know, and I've heard they can, get up some pretty good speed if they really want to so you know just because he was going slow now don't mean he was going to keep that yeah it was hot that day he probably wasn't wanting to go fast i don't know i just know i probably looked delicious so (laughs) (laughs) i didn't want to take that chance (laughs) that's funny it was a fun trip i like bear hugs but not not a true bear hug yeah but yeah so that was a really fun trip sorry i'm making noise that's okay do you want to we want to do the uh, yeah. iTunes reviews Let's real quick. Let's do that real quick. Okay. And then we'll get Leslie up here in a second. All righty. All right. We had Tenley Aaron, our lovely Mojo Lobster, <laughs> Wrench Bender 1, J Moto Freak 72, Golly Bill, Page 87, Trish Canella, MK Roll, and Courtney Henyon. Thank you, guys. Those reviews were really awesome. And we just appreciate those more than anything. It really helps us. And uh, I just love like what y'all have to say. I'm very fortunate. I agree. All right. Before we bring Leslie on, the other topic that I want to talk about, and if you're in the group, you already know this, but if you're, and if you're at the Pitch and Forge show, you know it, but I have decided to write a book and I've talked about it in the past and, but we've actually started on it now. 
and what the book will involve. It's meant to be inspirational, but it's a little bit of something for everybody, especially if you're into the paranormal. This book is going to be into three segments. It's going to be into my paranormal experiences growing up in a haunted house. And then it's going to cover a very hard thing to cover, which is my past with depression, with a suicide attempt, and it's going to you're going to see a different version of me than what than what you've come to know because I am a different person than I was 15, 20, 25 years ago. And you know, I I've said this to myself, not really to anybody, but we talked about doing a book a year ago. And the only reason that I really haven't done it, if I'm going to be honest about it, is the fact that I didn't necessarily want to relive the type of person that I was. It's not the type of person that you probably would even think that I was. I mean, I wasn't a criminal by any means. You know, I wouldn't like, a you know, one of the birds from Ozark. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't that wouldn't me. But, you know, I wasn't a great husband. I wasn't a great father. And um, I don't think I was near the person in general that I am today. And, you know, it's it's tough to talk about those things, but it's the cruel reality. And I'm living proof that people can change. I'm not perfect today. It's it's a work in progress. It's been a work in progress for 20 years. And it's going to be a work in progress the next 20 years. It's just the way that it is. And, you know, and that's the second part of this book. And that's the part that I'm dreading. And then the third part is where you come in. This is where we talk about how we take paranormal that's always been a love and a therapeutic thing for me and we take people um, that are battling depression and we try to use the paranormal to help those people and at the same time I'm helping myself the goal is for people to read this and say you know what I can get through this I can be a better person I can fight my demons I can get rid of of some of my suicidal thoughts and I'm wanting to put myself out there in a way to show people that if I could do it, you could do it too. So even though it's hurtful to admit some of these things on on my own level, I think it's necessary to help others. So that's the goal here is to, to see how my depression, my guilt and some of my life, and in my paranormal experiences have come together to create hillbilly horror stories, which, to be honest with you, I would do it all over again if that's what it means. Because we have had person after person write us to tell us that this show has either got them to seek help or it's kept them from committing suicide for one reason or another, or it's... You know, just gotten them through a rough time. They had a a loss of a loved one. They had a breakup. They had a divorce. And we helped them get through something. And four years of seeing emails and letters and instant messages from all different social media platforms is just amazing. So I decided that if we were going to do a book, it was going to be in honor of those people, those people who it's made a difference, those people in the group. Uh, that that felt like that the group has made a difference. I just heard from somebody the other day. I'm not going to get into names because even though they even though they've given me the authority to, I'm not going to get into names right now. But you know, as 
we'll talk about the group in, in a second, but we're going to talk about the positive right now. I've got a, a listener from Australia that is has went through hell this year. And he went through a divorce after 20-some-odd years, and he didn't feel like he could take it anymore. His own words. I just don't think I could take it anymore. He joined the group because he, he wanted help. He contacted me, and I told him to join the group. And he met someone in the group here in the United States that has meant the world to him. He told me the other day that they've talked on the phone for up to nine hours at a time. And she feels the exact same way about him. She's also somebody who's had her own uh, battles with depression. And now they've found each other. And no, it's not like a romantic relationship or anything like that, but it's a helping each other relationship. And she told me that he had mentioned to her that one night when they were talking, he had bought himself a bottle of liquor. He had already started drinking, and his intention was to just go out, get in his car, and kill himself. And she talked him out of it. And they both say if it wasn't for the group, they don't know if he would be here today. Wow. So... That's what this book is going to be about. I want to include stories, if people are willing to share them. And we can also, like I said, make sure it's anonymous so you don't have to put it out there. But if somehow this group has made a tremendous difference in your life, whether it forced you to go get help or whether it kept you from committing suicide. And trust me, we probably have received at least 20 messages that said it's kept them from physically committing suicide. But you, we want you all to understand is how much you guys have helped me and Jerry. Yeah, I mean it's therapeutic. I mean, it's it's. I mean it's incredible because just what you I, you all don't realize what you guys have done for us and the way sometimes we look at things, and so that's why we love this group so much. But. I want to include some of your stories in the books if you're okay. So mm-hmm. if you have a story, you know that you can condense down to just a couple of paragraphs and want them in the book, please send them to me. Send them to me any way you want to, and I'll make sure they get in the book because I think that's important for other people to see that what we've done has made a difference, and that's why we still do it, in all honesty. Well, I just want to say to you that in the beginning, I doubted that you were going to do a book. I don't know why. I just did. And I just want to say that I'm proud of you because – I read the beginning of your stuff and it's incredible and you literally are you just get so involved with it. I don't I mean I don't know what to say except I guess I want to apologize to you because like I said I was like okay we're going to write a book, you know. <laughs> That's just how it was. But, you know, I am just really proud of you cuz you're doing a great job and so far so good at the what you have written so far has really touched my heart. So um, hopefully it'll be out there for everybody else, too. Yeah, it's probably going to my goal is to have it out by the end of the year. But here's the thing. And this is why I'm, I'm mentioning this now. I, I could probably have most of it written in the next three weeks. But then there's a lot that goes on. I mean, oh, it's, yeah, it has to be polished up. It's got to be proofread. It's got to be edited. So I would I'm, I'm asking you now if you've got these stories to get them to me. And because I'm going to be sending them off to editors and stuff like mm-hmm. that, probably within the next month or so. So that's that's kind of the goal. Yeah, that but would be so amazing if you did. You guys did that. 
All right, so that leads me to this. And I hate to be a negative Nancy, but I don't really have a choice in this matter. I'm just trying to plead with you guys. If you're in the group, try to remember that it is hard with this many people. And I don't want to go backwards and have less people because you don't know that one person that's no longer in the group that you could have helped that you can't. You know, here's the situation. We've had a couple of members in the past month that's openly came out and said, hey, you know, the group's not as supportive as I thought it was. Let's remember that everybody's got a different version of what support is and everybody's got a different level of support. Now, when we see stuff like somebody makes a rude comment, we will usually one of the, we've got five different people that control this group. We've got myself and Tracy, we've got Tim Mullins, we've got Natasha who started the group, and we've got John Joslin. You can contact any one of us if you have an issue. And we will look into it. We there are so many posts on that thing every day, we sometimes just miss it. So unless mm-hmm. somebody tells us, we won't know. But the reality of it is. We're not going to be able to please everybody. And, you know, I advertise. I had a person point this out to me, and and I'll I'll take this one. They said, you advertise this as a safe place. What is a safe place? And the fact that you can post whatever, but most people don't scrutinize you. Here's the problem, though. Sometimes somebody will make a comment that most people won't consider to be scrutinizing, but you might take take it as scrutinizing, and now all of a sudden you're offended that somebody said this to you. I get it. I can't control all of that. I can't control the way each individual person feels. And I'll tell you what brought this up. The, the, I won't bring up the person's name, but I've had a conversation with them off the record, and it, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. But somebody posted a meme. And the meme, we've all seen these a thousand times. we all growing up. How many times have you heard, you know, from your parents, all that music you listen to is garbage. Back in my day, we had this music. Or how many times have you heard, oh, in my day, we had to walk up both sides of hills, you know, in the snow to get to school. That's always going to be a thing. And we had a meme that somebody said back in the 80s, we did this, 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 and that. And then today, somebody's, you know, the kid's upset because the batteries died in their uh, iPad. I would not have thought for the world of me that somebody would have took that as offensive. But somebody younger did find it offensive. And then they started criticizing everybody on that post about the comments they were making. Look, I get it. I wouldn't have thought it was offended, but it was offended to somebody else. And who am I to say to somebody else, you shouldn't be offended by this, no matter what it is. Everybody knows what offends them. But my point is... In a group that big, somebody's going to post something that's going to offend somebody. Have a little bit of ability. If you see something like that, just scroll past it. If you start criticizing everybody, then it starts a fight. Now everybody's criticizing each other, and that's what we're not trying to do. We'll take down as much stuff as we can if we really find like feel like it's offensive. You know, and, you know, we we try to put the rules in place, but have a little bit of patience with us is all I'm asking. You know, don't come out and blast us that it's not a, uh, you know, uh, the place that you thought it once was. It's not supportive because, you know what, for every one of those that you can tell me it's not supportive, I can give you 70 
of people that will tell you it's 10 times more supportive than they ever thought it would be. And that's all I'm saying. Have patience with the group. Report stuff if you do, and we'll look at it. But just because we don't rule in your favor doesn't mean we don't care about you and we're not being supportive. We have to look out for the whole of the group. And with fifty or 5,000 people, it's pretty damn hard to do sometimes. So sorry that that went on so long, but I felt like it needed to be said. Please send me your stories if you want to include in the book on how the group's helped you. And we'll put that on there. So let's listen to Leslie. Sorry it took so long to get into her, but uh, this is a good one. <laughs> All right. Hold on one second. And we'll listen to Leslie now. Listening to the fear of the week. With author Leslie Fear. Hey guys, welcome to episode 24 of the Fear of the Week with author Leslie Fear. You can pick up all of her books at Amazon, including the newest book, which is available for pre-order. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Thank you guys. Good to be here. Good to hear your voices. Hi. So, Leslie, real quick on the book that's available for pre-order. I think we talked about it, but I don't know if we gave a name or not on the last episode. Well, the name of it is called Peripheral, like Peripheral Vision. Okay, I and think you did do that. Okay, good. Yeah, and if we didn't, I don't, I don't know if we did or not. I but don't think we did. Yeah, but it's a paranormal romance, just like all my other books that I write. That's just the genre I enjoy. You, like you said, you can pre-order the paperback and the ebook pre-order should be up very soon, and it'll be out August fourth. Awesome. All right, Leslie. This week, it seems like the stories that people comment the most are the ones that involve some type of bacteria or mites or some kind of uh, organisms that that kind of eat away at our body. And you seem to have found another source, and I'm going to let have. you take it away. Well, we're going to talk about brain-eating amoebas. Are you playing a tambourine in the background back there? I am not. (laughs) But I would like to if I could, because I'd be like celebrating this stuff. Tracy doesn't like it one bit, but I think it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I liked your your joke last week on the uh, whole uh, football team. Uh I I got you right back, bucko. You did, and that was was awesome. (laughs) So, uh, brain-eating amoebas. I don't know how much you know about them, guys. Not but dang thing. I have one disappointing thing to tell you. They don't actually eat your brain. Oh. Lies. All lies. It's very deceptive. It is totally a lie. What happens is it makes they make your brain swell. And that's never good, which causes brain damage, which causes you to die. That, but for some reason, somebody came up with that phrase. Uh, I tried to look it up, couldn't find out why they said that. I think it just somebody uh, coined the phrase and it just kind of stuck because it's way more sexy than um, your brain swells because an amoeba went up your nose. Yeah, you know? brain, yeah. brain swelling amoeba. <laughs> yeah, brain swelling amoeba, yeah. So, and that's the thing. You can only get them when a contaminated amoeba goes up your nose. Now, where would this happen? Do you know where this would happen, guys? Uh, in the water. Yes, but it typically occurs when people go swimming during um, the warm summer months, you know, when, when it's really hot, in freshwater lakes and or rivers. See, so we, were ju- we just went to a big lake. Everybody got in to go swimming except for us. 
And now if they end up with brain swelling because of an infected amoeba, the joke's on them. Hmm. <laughs> it is on them. <laughs> well, and it's usually that stagnant, really hot water, you know. Now, rivers aren't necessarily stagnant, but they can get really hot too, right? Right. So, And that's the thing. They love hot water. They can survive in up to 113 degree temperatures. Which is 45 degrees in Celsius. I did the math. Oh, there you go. I know. See, I'm, I'm coming through for you. I am. <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing my job. It's beautiful you know, to I'm see. I'm not getting paid. It's beautiful to see you grow. <laughs> Thank you. I'm learning from the best, see? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so once you actually have an amoeba inside your brain, you don't even know. It can take two to 15 days for hmm. the symptoms to appear. And, which I didn't think that I thought that was really strange. I mean, I guess it just takes that long for it to because it's such a small organism. I, I would it just think takes so. that long to yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it's really no different than what we're going on right now with COVID nineteen because they're saying it's like a, a two week incubation period. So it it's kind of the same. What's it the is. symptoms? Uh, well, the symptoms are what what well mostly it's very bad headaches very high fever and i'm going to give you an example of a little girl that it actually happened here in texas <clears throat> and i remember hearing this on the uh news it's back in 2017 what happened to her was she went swimming um on september 17 2019 a 10-year-old texas girl died due to the brain eating well, just the amoeba they they gave you the the actual proper name of it but it's just easier to say from the amoeba um uh, eight days after getting a headache and high fever. Now, the doctors, they would, they're not going to go, oh, well, she's got a brain-eating amoeba. But that's, they didn't think that. Of course, they just thought she had a virus, and they sent her right. home. You know, of course. And, and her parents even understood that. So, but what happened was she went home, and then she started feeling very, very ill um, to where I think it was on, like, that following Sunday, um, you know, she became unresponsive, fever went really high, and she died, um, like, the very, very next morning. And mm. it was it was bad. And she had, and I think it was, a, uh, my husband wants to say it was like a fossil, fossil creek lake or something like that. I don't know where, fossil rim lake, I don't know. Anyway, we got a lot of dinosaur places around here, believe it or not, <laughs> that mm-hmm. they find dinosaur bones and stuff, and they call it fossil, whatever. And it seems like it was something called fossil something. I should have looked that up. But anyway, not that that matters. But it's very hot here. I know it gets hot in Kentucky, but it's very dry hot, too, and it gets that much hotter. When it's more human, humid, it doesn't get as hot outside. But when it's, when it's you know, like a dry heat gets really hot, you can actually stand it longer in the, in the shade when it's mm-hmm. hot, but it still gets that much hotter. And they love that hot water. Mm-hmm. That's what's scary. Yeah. That poor little but, thing. Yeah. And I, oh, back to the COVID, you said, you know, remember you said it takes like two weeks mm-hmm. for that to show up. There's a lady, I don't know if y'all saw the news. There's a lady who now has, has had it, is having it now. She's had it again. And I don't know if it's just Dallas or um, it's the national news. I didn't know which one it was because I, I just caught the end of it. But she's actually got it. She got it in February, and now she has it again. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I wonder I wonder if that is like a chicken pox deal that eventually comes back out as mm-hmm. uh, a shingles or something. Where, shingles. Where she had it in her body already or if she came in contact with somebody else. Well, it's scary because they, like I said, they, they know very li- so much, very little about this disease, obviously. And... You know, there's a, and she even gave antibodies. 
But I, I have a feeling it just went dormant. It didn't actually leave her system, and God knows what made it come back. Or she, maybe she was just exposed again. I don't know. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? But uh, no, brain-eating amoebas, they don't actually eat your brain. The symptoms are deceptively exactly like a really severe cold or upper respiratory infection. Doctors would never think... Now, if they'd caught it, they probably they would have given her an antibiotic, a really, really, really strong antibiotic. Um, and I had it written down. I can't find it. What was it? Um, where is it? Oh, it's called um, nitromidalzo, and it kills the amoebas um, in the wall of your intestines and in your liver and uh, in the stem of your – oh, I'm sorry, and in your blood. And they work by stopping the growth of the bacteria. And if she'd had that – antibiotic you know if they'd have known but that's not the first thing you think of when you have a headache oh i have a brain tumor or i have a brain eating amoeba you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) they just thought she had a virus and of course they weren't you know in in trouble or anything or or they didn't get you know um sued or anything but yeah yeah, well you know some people might want to do that they had no way of knowing and uh i don't even think they knew until they, the symptoms of her just going unconscious and they're like, wait a minute, let's do some more testing. And they found it in her blood. It by was really time, sad. By that time, it was too late. Yeah. So people in Texas or people in the really, really hot areas, just be careful when you're jumping in lakes and little rivers. I, I don't. And even contaminated pool water or whatever. Just be careful. Use nose plugs or, you know, or just don't go underwater if you can help it or don't suck, a, suck up any water. <laughs> It's hard to do. I mean, I don't know how, how many people could do that, but or go to the ocean because they can't survive in salt water. Yeah, I'm not really into lakes and stuff like that as far as Mm-mm. swimming. I mean, if it's no. if it's like a quarry or something that's like really clear water or something, I might feel different about it. But the actual lakes and stuff, like when we were out at this lake, I mean, it's it's a beautiful lake, but it was green, and mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, that's not something I want to swim in. No, I know. And I just, we, when I was young, and I'm sure we all can say this, Tracy too, mm-hmm. we used to, we used to go to a lake, like Tawakini, um, and we would go, that's like the biggest man-made lake here in Texas. I used to live in Wills Point. Um, and uh, we had a dock and we, we, you know, that's what you did. You just jumped in the lake and it wasn't a big deal. Now I'm grossed out by it. Oh, I am too. I can't imagine doing it now, but when mm. you're young and a kid, you don't think about it like that. You're like, hey, cool, jump in. Let's mm-hmm. just, you know, and you get an inner tube. Let's get some, let's float down with some beer. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I'm you like know? you. It's, it's, it grosses me out. I'm, I'm more into creeks. I mean, if you get a really nice creek with a nice little flow growing and, and you know, and a bunch of rocks and stuff everywhere, just get in, splash around. That's that's more me. That's more you. Yeah, the Whitewater Rapids. You don't oh, like that, though? Love that, too. But I, you can't really get in no, <laughs> can't really get in there without a raft because typically you, you know, get crushed to death by the rocks and killed. And that's not well, really that's how I like to spend a Saturday or a that's, Sunday. No, that's, no, me neither. Especially or a weekday, for that matter. So, well, <laughs> once again, Leslie, you've outdone yourself. Awesome well, job. Well, thank you. And I'm so glad that you all know now to be careful about hot water and stagnant water and lakes or rivers in very hot parts of the United States because you have to be careful, guys. And uh, I guess I'll see myself out. That wraps up this week, Tracy. It was a good one. I enjoyed it. Like I said, I like the prison ones. Yeah, I do too. They're all really sad. They are. But some of these older prisons, man, they are some of the most beautiful structures. I know. Isn't that crazy? So, I mean, like, I know with the Ohio State Penitentiary, we were I was listening, watching a video on that recently, 
And the the people were talking about how many people come there strictly for the architecture. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of amazing. There no wonder go. they picked it for Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. So, all right, guys. Thank you so much. We love you. We appreciate you. And we'll be seeing you soon. Yeah, we love you guys. We hope you have a blessed week. <laughs>